standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and just popping in briefly at the top to let you know we're doing things a bit differently this week because of the old August bank holiday. I fed some otters and can only apologise that that means I won at weekend in pals. So yeah, no BT or DDD this week. Instead, Hannah and I are bringing you four fresh interviews with five smashing women. I caught up with the one and only Annie Nightingale, longest serving woman in DJdom and utter delight, and also chatted with the excellent Liz Foley and Beth Coates about You Goddess, which is their follow-up to What Would Buddha Could Do, and this time they're gleaning useful advice and female solidarity from mythical women. Hannah chats to Nydia Hetherington about her debut novel, A Girl Made of Air, Fairies on the Isle of Man and the Literary Appeal of the Circus. And she's talking ethical clothes shopping with journalists Rhiannon and Lucy Coslett. Who doesn't bloody love a charity shop, eh? I know I do. Annie Nightingale's up first. Just a heads up that if this snippet of chat leaves you wanting more, and I am fairly confident it will, well, you can have it. My full half hour with Annie will be this week's Sunday Chops. Enjoy the show. Hopefully it'll be almost as good as six little otters making eye contact and squeaking for food. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Britain's first female DJ, muso extraordinaire and broadcasting legend, Annie Nightingale, to chat about her new book. Well, Annie, I think it is only right if you tell us the title. Hey, hi, hello. Of course it is. (laughs) I used to just show on Sunday night on Radio 1 and it came right after the top 40 and so the idea was that the first record you played would be a kind of very familiar something that make people think they're still listening to the top 40 to keep them listening so I wouldn't speak until just before the vocal came in and I would just say hi and people were intrigued by that and like, why did you say it when? And they didn't understand what the trick was. And so that's that's when that began. And then now I say, hey, hi, hello, as you open my show anyway. And I don't know how it came to me as a title for a book, but it did. And I think titles can be very difficult to get right, actually. And the publisher likes, I thought, thank goodness for that. <laughs> we got over that early, you know. Just before we talk about Hey, Hi, Hello, I wanted to ask you about the current situation we find ourselves in. Because you were a war baby and there have been a lot of comparisons made between that time and what we're going through now with COVID-19 and lockdown. And I just wondered, what do you make of that? That's a very good question. I was born, yeah, I was born into World War II. Also, I was a baby. Do you know, having been a party animal for a long time, I missed the VE day party, the street party. <laughs> I had measles. I still haven't got over it. I'm still annoyed. But I missed the first big party ever. So, but I did grow up and obviously the rationing thing, lack of anything new, went on for many years. So yes, I do see parallels with what's going on now. Um, you know, when it began, we had that shortages and people were coming, would come out to your house or something say, I'll, you know, I'll give you a loaf of bread or something. I thought, this actually reminds me. And I felt better able to deal with it. I thought, okay, we're going rationing. We're going shortages. It will be like World War Two, So deal with it. Don't moan. Don't complain. Everybody has to deal with that. And so, yeah, it did have slight echoes. And in a way, I felt I've been through this once, so I should actually be able to deal with it perhaps better than... Mm-hmm 
other people who to whom I was obviously everyone's a horrible shock to realize that suddenly everyone's life is absolutely upended. Yeah. We don't know when that's going to stop. So in a weird way, yes, it, it did. Let's talk about your book. Hey, Hi, Hello is a joyous read. It is absolutely jam-packed with anecdotes from your 50 years in broadcasting on radio, on TV, on the live music scene, and it's interspersed with transcripts of past interviews that you've done. At the beginning of all this, though, you really were a woman on your own, the first female DJ on the BBC when you joined in 1970, and you stayed the only woman DJ there for another 12 years. Can you tell us the story of how you made that happen, how you became the first female DJ at the BBC? Well, I was very persistent. (laughs) I could not understand. I'd worked in television, written in magazines, newspapers. I I mean, I'd started out as a general reporter, but I'd done all that. But, you know, I had a music column, so I felt equipped, you know, professionally enough to do it. It wasn't just kind of, you know, some kid going, hey, can I be on the radio? I mean, I felt (laughs) I had enough experience to be able to do it so Radio 1 had started in 1967 they said quite early on there will be no female DJs and I was staggered because I thought well why? you know just why? so I began a campaign feminism was very much coming in, you had a magazine like Cosmopolitan coming in I used to write their music column for them Uh and so the feminists were being you know much more uh, uh, you know, uh, active and so I could not understand this attitude and why and in the end it came out that they said this job is a husband substitute and I thought what an extraordinary outmoded attitude mm-hmm. I don't know that they had some picture some 1950s idea of the men go out to work and the women stay at home with a frilly penny making fairy cakes <laughs> So they needed to be every husband substitute. So I thought it was ridiculously outmoded attitude. But looking at the management, that is probably what their wives did. Yeah. In fact, one or some executive wife, and I, you know, I went to some do, some do at the beginning, and she actually said to me, aren't you afraid you'll lose your femininity? <laughs> and I thought, ah, well, there we are. I had often been the only female in you know, in the, in the newspaper office, I didn't think anything of it. I just had great fun. Gender did not come into it, actually. I'm working for magazines and TV. That sexism reared its head more at, at Radio 1 than it had ever done before for me. Mm-hmm. I was really shocked. And so I began this campaign, writing in magazines about, about Radio 1, whatever. And then, so it took three years. And in the end, I think the public opinion was such that they almost had to take somebody on. And because I'd been pestering them and sending them tapes or really badly recorded them, or I'd go in there and meet them and give them records, they've got fingerprints all over the vinyl. <laughs> and they go, oh, we can't play this. <laughs> I think if I just wore them down eventually. But then you think, oh, well, am I just the token woman? And the fact that there wasn't anyone else, I thought after me, they all come streaming through the door. But I was quite surprised when there weren't any more. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm a freak that no one else female wants to do this job. But I have actually no idea whether there were other women who came along, got turned down. I have no idea to this day. And until Janice Long happened. And because now we don't have parity, but it's a lot better. 
yeah. to the extent that we don't like being called female DJs because we're DJs uh-huh. and the male DJs don't call, get called male DJs. Absolutely. And actually the current crop of DJs or women at radio, I feel quite strongly about that and I agree with them. I am absolutely not brown-nosing you here, but I was flabbergasted that you're 80 years old. I, I didn't want to believe that, couldn't believe it. Do you think music and that passion has kept you young? I think so, yeah. Remember that, because of the BBC policy stuff, I didn't get near a radio studio until I was 30. Now, nowadays, there's people doing that kind of stuff when they're 15. Mm. So that, yeah, it took a long time to get involved. And I always say about, you know, if you ever see interviews with film directors who've taken 10, 15 years to get a movie made, they nearly all kind of got white hair and stuff because it's taken so much of their life to to get where they were, to get to where they are. And I think that's true. But I am very, very fortunate that Radio 1, they say, well, you're there because you're relevant. And they mean I play the music that is relevant now, some of my friends say, who are younger than me, most of them anyway, but um, they don't enjoy what I play. Well, fair enough, I don't mind. Um, you know, I, yeah, I probably am a freak, but I like <laughs> to hear things that I've never heard before. You've overseen 50 years of the evolution of, of music and of broadcasting. So I wanted to know what, in your opinion, has been the biggest change in the music scene across those five decades that's made the biggest impact? Well, I think several after the 60s, that generation. Then in the 70s, you had a huge amount of different kind of music came in. So, you, you know, you have reggae and uh, hard rock and disco. And all I've, I've done a couple of documentaries which go out in November about punk and post-punk, by the way. Oh, cool. Uh, to cover that, the, the years that I was on the old Grey Whistle there, which have not been retrospectively covered properly. So we cover that kind of 70s time and then the electronic 80s so it's progressed with lots and lots of different changes and when I first heard Kraftwerk I thought that's it nothing, nothing's ever going to done the same I was always very to me electronic music was you know very much at the future as it proved to be mm-hmm. but then you know, you know we've got grime we've got drill we've got what I play a lot of trap future based I mean call it what you like it doesn't matter. It's got to be good. That's my criteria. And I like the fact that it keeps moving and changing. I don't want to hear somebody put out a, a tune now that actually could have, that was five years ago. We've heard that. Let's hear something else. And I'm fascinated to know where it's going. Where will Billy Eilish go? Now, that's incredible talent. She's 18. She's like the biggest star in the world. I'm fascinated to follow her and see what direction she'll take. Things like that. So I'm, it's curiosity, a lot of it. I want to know where it will go next. Your passion for music has, has shone through everything you've done. And there's a really, really lovely bit in one of your interviews in the book with Underworld's Carl Hyde, where he mentions meeting Miles Davis and you become a yeah. little bit awestruck. And I guess it surprised oh, me because yeah. you've not only met, but you spent quality time with so many bona fide legends that I thought maybe you wouldn't be awestruck anymore. But it doesn't wear off. No, I don't No, I mean, but he was so casual way saying, yeah, we were here, and then we heard Miles. I went, what, Miles Davis? <laughs> I was so impressed. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of my great heroes. I haven't met all my heroes. I've never met Eminem, and he's one of my heroes. So, yeah, well, I think you need some. I mean, I'm a fan. I'm proud of that. Yeah, definitely. Is there anyone that you think you might not have been able to keep your cool with? Once, a long, long time ago, in um, Monaco, I stepped into a lift, and Paul Newman was in the lift. I couldn't handle out to step out. <laughs> so that, that, I, I, that was, I lost my cool over that. Couldn't handle that. Hey Hi Hello is out on September the 3rd, published by White Rabbit and available from all good bookshops. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to, please, Annie? Because you are on that there Twitter, aren't you? I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. My Twitter name is AA Nightingale. I'm Annie.Nightingale on Instagram. But you can get this book on um, Amazon. It would be very nice to feel that um, it gets a, a wide audience. So I've enjoyed writing it really very much, actually. Well, I think that shines through. I, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I, I really did. Thank you so, so much for chatting to me. I've actually really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined on the phone by author Nydia Hetherington, author of A Girl Made of Air, a debut novel which is out in September. Thank you for joining us, Nydia. Thank you for having me. I'm halfway through this book and I'm absolutely loving it. But whenever I see a debut book at the moment, I feel this sense of what has it been like to have this incredibly exciting thing happen to you? Hey, my book is being published happen at a time where there are no book festivals we're all in our houses how's that been for you pretty dreadful to be perfectly honest (laughs) and I'm one of the lucky ones in that my publishers have been amazing absolutely amazing and so supportive and like getting it out there as much as possible in these terrible times and I know some debut authors haven't been so lucky or they're with smaller publishers who just can't afford to do that you know so in a way I'm at the lucky end of it because I've got these amazing publishers but still it's been pretty dreadful yeah it's not at all the way you imagined I had a really bad year last year for various reasons health reasons and also book reasons it's a long story and then it all seemed to come together with getting this publishing deal and it was all going to be brilliant and 2020 was just going to be this like sparkling year after the (laughs) hell of 2019 because of course it couldn't get much worse than that how could it and then global pandemic yeah yeah hard it's been hard really hard mainly because this global pandemic business has compacted all of my anxiety I've got too much anxiety for the space to put it in You know, you know, and I think we're all feeling it. I, I'm no way on my own with this. I know lots of people feel like this. But then this amazing thing is happening to me at the same time, which is my dream of getting my book published is happening at the very same time as dealing with anxiety. This, you can't marry these two things together. <laughs> yeah, it is what I would call in an unmedical term an absolute head fuck. Yeah. This, this idea of that half of your brain is massively overstimulated with fear and panic and worry and the other half of your brain is just absolutely bored so bored because you're not doing anything and you're not seeing anything and it's such a strange sort of marriage to hold together in your head I think I read that's why we're all having insane dreams let's get on to your book which is why we're here you tell us what you'd like people to know about a girl made of air 
because if I do it, I might spoil something. So a girl made of uh, the basic narrative is a baby's born into the circus just before the end of the Second World War. She is rejected by her mother. She kind of grows up a bit feral within the circus. She's looked after eventually by the circus phenambulist, which is a tightrope walker, and she's taught how to be a tightrope walker and eventually she becomes the star of the show but during all of that time there are lots of difficulties obviously she sees her mother who's have kind of abandoned her around the circus a lot and there are lots of ups and downs and she has problems with self-image and all that kind of stuff she finds it difficult to communicate because obviously you know abandonment and all that and eventually she goes off and finds her way in the world by going to America and becoming a cabaret star after a stint in Coney Island. So that's the basic narrative. But what it really is, is a woman trying to figure out how her life and her relationships with the women in her life have brought her to where she is. And she does this by transcribing notebooks from when she was a child, diary entries, letters from certain people, and sort of peppers them with her own memories, which may or may not be correct, because our memories don't always serve as well, you know. So really, it's a it's a search for identity. It's a look at how we inherit suffering and harm from the generations that go before us, how we negotiate the stories. It's all about storytelling. These are all stories, all the stories we've heard about our ancestors or the people who have gone before us. They all affect us. And then we have to negotiate with ourselves and with those stories, navigate those stories and then pass them on. And so that's really what it's about. It's about how we tell our stories, how we live with those stories, how we pass them on. Tightrope walking, although phenambulism, way better word, is such a great metaphor for life. I mean, like, I can't be the only <laughs> person that, that spotted this. But the circus itself is something that you are particularly interested in. I find the circus totally fascinating. Mickey, who um, is also on our podcast, has actually done some circus tricks and things. Mine is much more from a literary point of view, I find it really interesting what is it to you that you that makes the circus so enthralling I was trained in physical theatre and clowning but I was training in theatre clowning there are obvious crossovers obviously I mean there's still the red nose and all that kind of stuff but it's not the squirty bow tie there are no gags a theatre clown really is a way of exploring the human condition in a theatrical way but there are obvious crossovers from the beginnings of the circus and the commedia dell'arte and all that kind of stuff and so it's this circus aesthetic really that kind of draws me to it and I have I've performed in in tents basically in fields there's something quite different from performing obviously in a in a theater environment and you know the, the the walls move and shadows are created and that creates its own theater you know just by the the actual structure that you're in being what it is so that's quite exciting in itself but also the circus is the ultimate place for the outsider to live you know, it brings outsiders together. It gives outsiders a place to belong. And that's a, a very romantic idea, I think. And 
all of these things, the aesthetic, the circus aesthetic, and the idea of the outsider sort of has always made me turn to this wonderful idea of spectacle, the circus. And also my own sort of love of theatre, I think, comes from very basic theatrical experiences like the circus, you know, because we didn't go to the theatre when I was a kid. I grew up in Leeds, you know, we I come from a, a, a working class family in Leeds. We didn't we didn't go to go to the theatre, except for maybe pantomime and things like that. But we did go to the circus. We went to the circus a few times back in the days when they had the animals and everything. Yeah, I went I went to the circus once. I can remember it. And it is a family story. I went once and I was absolutely terrified by it, which was weird having that I was really excited about going and I remember being excited about going and then I remember going there and just being just overwhelmed by it and and really scared by you know well I think it's pretty stereotypical that people are scared of clowns aren't they but just I I found it all a bit much what I find really interesting about it is that it's you people live in the same place but it's not the same place so it's this functioning moving community so they essentially live nowhere but also live everywhere. Totally fascinating. And yeah, your descriptions of it are absolutely brilliant. It reminded me a lot of, have you ever seen Carnival? The HBO series about, about, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, obviously, the, the, the comparison, which is, I, I suppose you're probably going to hear a lot when you're talking about theatre and, and uh, magical realism, is Angela Carter. Is that a blessing or a curse to have a sort of comparisons to her there? It's extremely flattering, that's for sure. I, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. It's extremely flattering because obviously I love her writing. I think that if it wasn't set in the circus, perhaps it wouldn't be compared yeah. to yeah. Angela Carter. I think it's because, you know, because of feathers and uh, um, lights at the circus and everything. And the sort of elements of the uncanny and the fabulous. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I hesitate to say magical realism, as did Angela Carter, actually, because magical realism seems to be something that's a part of South American writing for, uh, and it's, it's to do with political allegory, mm. you know, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Isabel Allende as well. And and my work is not allegory at all, you know. So I don't, I don't, I don't really like the term magical realism because I think it's been stolen. Yeah. I like the idea of, of using the uncanny and using the fabulous and, you know the strange or or something or the grotesque even that's what I was doing in theatre for a long time is kind of looking for that liminal space between reality and dream that we often fall into on an everyday basis like the grotesque of the everyday yeah you know and we all have these things in our imaginations I'm convinced I'm not alone in that that we see the world in in this liminal space that we drop into it often and we see the world like that, but then you've got to go and make your dinner or, you know, you need the loo. And, and so things crash into this kind of, this this world of our imaginations, which are, for me, they're more real to me than than needing to go to the loo, which is very real, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's a more real experience. Yeah. But it's saying earlier about these like having these wild dreams at the moment because our brains can't marry themselves together with experience in reality you see in the past I've loved those moments in my life where I've been having those wild dreams because it's almost like I'm touching that place that I'm always as a creative person trying to find so you have like periods of months where you have these amazing dreams and then they disappear and you're like oh no I want those dreams back again (laughs) but then 
we're in the time at the moment where you kind of rather not just because yeah. it, it is describing the situation we're living in which is unpleasant yeah oh yeah those are ultimately way better dreams than the one where you're doing something repeatedly like I used to have dreams uh, where I was just at work uploading copy when I worked at a newspaper and I was like this is all my brain can think about this is so tedious this is literally what I've done all day and yeah. where I'm supposed to escape to a fantasy world my brain has decided to go oh let's go back there and just be like doing this really yeah. tedious task talking of sort of magic and fantasy there is a lot of folk tales in this that are relayed <laughs> folk tales about the Isle of Man you were born on the Isle of Man. I wanted to talk about it because it's it's such an interesting place, the Isle of Man, in that it is most people in the British Isles entirely forget it exists. I suppose that's a feeling that people from the Isle of Man have. Was it important to you to say, hey, we've got our own stories and our own culture out here? I wasn't born on the Isle of Man, actually. There's a part of me that wishes I was. We moved there when I was a tiny baby. I was born in Liverpool when I was a little baby and we lived there until I was I think I was four when we moved to Leeds so I don't even have that belonging to the island I have this strange feeling I have these really weird feelings for the Isle of Man because they are my first ever memories of life and I have vivid memories of you know being tiny and doing things and 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 the landscape of the place and the beach over the road and the storm drain going down to the beach I've all these vivid memories of the island and the old man that lived in the basement who spoke Manx and had a parrot in a cage you know and used to tell us all these superstitions I have major memories of these things I guess the first memories are very important to people. So my first memories are of the island. I wasn't born there, so I don't have that belonging to this place. And then at the age of four, we left. You know, so, so I've sort of dreamt of this place for so many years. I mean, we used to go back um, for holidays every year because my my mum had, you know, good friends over there. My parents had good friends over there. But I always felt like I was snatched away. And certainly when I was a little girl, I was kind of obsessed by the fairies, the Manx fairies. They were they they were like my friends. And I remember telling my mum when I was little that when we moved, I remember being in this big moving van, big removals lorry, you know, sat on my mum's knee in, in the front with the big drive the big man driving, saying to my mum, it's all right. It's all right because I've one of the fairies have come with me. So oh. it's all right. So so they've always been really important to me, these tales. And yes, and they're very important to the island. And the island, yes, does get forgotten. But I don't know if it if it if it likes being that much apart or not. I'm not sure. I think there's something nice about the fact that it has it's kept this identity and the Manx language is coming back now as well it was lost for well almost lost for so many years and there's been a really big shift to get the the Manx language back so Manx is taught in schools there are schools which are completely Manx speaking now so that's really good radio stations you know books you know literature all written in Manx again so that's really good that's similar to what's happened in Wales isn't it because the Welsh language has had a massive revival yeah. There is that tie with Ireland, isn't there, though? Because one of your stories about Finn McCall, and I thought, no, I know that name. Why do I know that name? Uh, it's the giant causeway, Finn McCall, yes. isn't it? 
which is Giant's Causeway. Yeah. So there are crossovers and there are also crossovers with Nordic history as well, because the Isle of Man used to belong to Norway, I believe, at one point. So there are all these Finnish, Norway, Scandinavian myths which cross over with Irish myths. And then there are things which are, are, are very specific just to the island as well. So there are lots of crossovers. Yeah. A lot of them. I don't, I don't know if they're real tales that you've taken or they're sort of... They, real, are, real they are They are real. I love the way that they're delivered are always, though, they're, because they are intrinsically all very sexist at heart, but they're, they're delivered by someone who, a teacher, has a lesson at the end of it which says, don't ever let a man treat you like this or don't ever be like that. Because I think, yeah, you look back, it's the same as with fairy tales. You look back and you just think, oh, God, that's horrific. I can't believe little girls were told stories like that for years and years. Yeah. You need someone at the end to close it and say, don't let that be you, which you you do very well in this. The the folk tales were actually collected by a woman called Sophia Morrison. And she is like a hero on the the Isle of Man. I think it was the late 1890s that she collected these folk tales. And she literally collected them verbatim, wrote them verbatim. So some of them are two sentences long. Mm. There's a lot of room to go in there and retell them. You know, some of them are a bit longer, but they're very sparse, put it that way. And I wanted to use real folk tales from the island and not just sort of make them up because I wanted to anchor Serendipity Wilson, who is the person who is from the Isle of Man in the book and who tells the tales. I wanted her very much to be anchored to the island. So that's why I used real ones, but retold them within a sort of a, a, a feminist frame, I suppose. Everything I come to, I come. I have to come to from a point of being a feminist. There's no way I can come to it from any other point of view because that is my experience, that's my life, and that is, you know, how I see the world and how the world should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're far from there, and everything I write will be from that because I can't write in any other way. Yeah. You know, how, how could I? Yeah. <laughs> you know i think i think writers of fiction people ask ask writers of fiction a lot you know so your stories are are they your stories or do you know someone who had this or do you know somebody who lived through that experience and i think all the stories just come from us always yeah and uh, uh, and i don't mean oh it's just in the imagination but they come from our lived experience even if you're talking about, you know, magical people with glowing hair, you know, it still comes somewhere. That person will still come from your lived experience. I'm absolutely sure of that. Yeah. Certainly for me, that works. Can I ask you about writing at this time? Yeah. Because I guess that you must be writing something else. How has that been for you? Dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> I love your it's honesty. <laughs> Honestly, it's been really difficult. So when lockdown happened, so I'd had this really bad year, but I'd managed to, last year, but I'd managed to write, start writing another book. And I'm approximately halfway through, although I'm now rejigging everything. And then when lockdown happened, right at the beginning, I had to go into shielding because my rheumatoid arthritis was really bad at the time and I was taking some new medication, the the autoimmune suppressant tablets. Oh, right. Yeah. Leave you really open to infection. Plus, ugh, stupidly, my stupid body reacted really badly to these tablets and I, and I was getting really unwell and my, my white blood count 
had gone right down. So I was already kind of semi-shielding when lockdown came in because my consultant was like, you know, just be really careful. Don't empty the litter tray for your cat. Yeah. You know, be careful of infection. So I was like, all right, I'll just not go out very much. So I was already sort of semi-shielding. And then I went into shielding. And I just couldn't write a word. I couldn't write a word for months and months and months. I would sit literally here in this little space in my little room. And I'd just sit here and I'd just go. Everything that I was writing about just seemed so just irrelevant. Mm. Anything that was going on, my imagination seemed irrelevant. The world seemed such a heavy, desperate, miserable place. Yeah. I just couldn't write. I just couldn't write. So so it all went on hold, really, for about five months. And I'm just kind of getting back into sort of looking at what I've written that one, because it's the new the new book is in 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 two halves, like part one, part two. It's going to be based in London. It's it's based at the turn of the millennium. So it's like um, based in 1999, the end of 1999, mm. as we're going into 2000, which seems like a million yeah. miles now and seems so ridiculous. Like, who cares about that now? You know, but, you know, it's got it's also about time and how time isn't although we experience it as a as a linear thing the 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 narrator we'll see how this goes but at the moment the narrator is William Blake wow (laughs) and yeah so but we'll see how that goes for the moment I'm it's still there I really love I'm trying to get his voice this idea that um all times exists at all the time so so William Blake can be watching because you know he was the five-year-old is walking down Peckham Ryan looking at angels in trees as there's somebody who's just coming out of lockdown sunbathing on the rye like Watchmen like Watchmen in fact Watchmen is one of my big my big watchwords in all my in in all my oh really I I said that and I thought she's going to say, no, nothing like Watchmen. This has been brilliant chat, Nydia. Um, I would advise everyone to read uh, A Girl Made of Air. All good bookshops, I'm guessing. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I am on the Zoom with authors E. Foley, Liz and B. Coates, Beth, to chat about their new book, You Goddess. Lessons in being legendary from awesome immortals. Liz, hello. Hello. Beth, hello. Hi. Thanks so much for joining me. So we last chatted to you about your book, What Would Buddha Could Do? And I've got to admit, raising everything to the ground has felt pretty tempting for most of 2020. (laughs) What do you reckon she would have done? Well, she was quite comfortable with a lot of people dying, wasn't she? So (laughs) I think, you know, she probably would have been quite, yeah, stark in her. But who knows? I mean, one of the things we talk about in this book is how when we started writing the book in the introduction we have a bit about how you know when these goddesses were all invented people had much tougher lives and there was plague and there was war and there was famine and that doesn't happen anymore and then lo and behold we had to change a bit (laughs) before we went to print because obviously then the plague bit kind of feels a bit more close now yeah i'm just really worried now that boudicca is reincarnated as boris johnson that's horrific (laughs) (laughs) no she had better hair that is true that is true so you've returned to the idea of irreverent advice being given from excellent women but instead of real life historical figures you goddess delves into the world of immortals there are 26 awesome goddesses in your book how did you find them all 
Actually, originally we had 25, didn't we? And then yeah. Aphrodite came in because she was a potential cover star at one point. And we felt we had to and then write about her. And actually, she was so brilliant on kind of body image and love and things like that. Both of us have been sort of obsessed with mythology since we were children. But obviously, the kind of the slant of what you were taught in school and what we grew up with is very kind of Greco-Roman. And we were really determined that we wanted to sort of do a global tour of goddesses and myths from around the world. For our own sort of curiosity, and also just we thought it was really good to hear those kind of stories that aren't told as widely. So we did a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of research into kind of, you know, around the world. And then the main thing we would, as our sort of um, selection criteria, was this was the myths and the stories mm, the attached stories. to them. We'd pick an amazing goddess, but then if you research it a bit further, then they didn't have the right actual sort of myth that could illustrate a modern day dilemma. Like, what was the one that yeah, you Yeah, so there's an Aztec goddess called Tlaltecutli. She's amazing because she is a kind of goddess of death and war, but she really goes against your archetypal goddess image. So she's this squatting monster with crocodile skin and she has kind of ravening mouths at her elbows and knees. <laughs> and she's constantly screaming for blood sacrifice. And so we kind of wanted to have her in there because she undercuts that kind of Venus Aphrodite idea of a goddess. She's a footnote, isn't she? She's, she's a footnote. So she's, she's, she's my favourite. <laughs> Yeah, good. I'm glad you like her too. So I was desperate to have, you know, to find a modern dilemma that she could answer. But actually, there is there just aren't enough stories that remain in actual kind of you know written record of myth about her mm. for her to be a full entry. But yes, we did get her in as a book. I loved her because women are like perpetually kept hungry. So she made sense to me that she was just <laughs> always like nom, 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 trying to eat stuff. <laughs> You've mentioned it there. It is a real globe and culture trotting experience, which takes in some goddesses everyone will know, like Athena and Kali and Lilith. But there were loads I hadn't heard of. So who was new to you? Actually, it's funny you mentioned Lilith, because I think I'd, I've known that name always, obviously. Mm. And she appears in Frasier. Yeah, she appears <laughs> yeah. in so much like popular culture as this kind of archetypal um difficult woman i suppose <laughs> but i hadn't realized that she was the first eve that adam had been with another woman before he was with eve according to jewish mythology i know i know according to jewish, jewish mythology and there's this great um text and story about her is that he wanted to sleep with her and go and do a missionary position and she absolutely refused she wanted to go on top and so he banished her, her and God banished her out to the, as, and she became a demon. And they brought Eve, the sort of submissive Eve, although she wasn't that submissive. No, she sort of also went wrong. You yeah. start to think it might not be the vibes. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. So I hadn't, there was, that was a real surprise to me that there was this pre-Eve woman that Adam was with. But yeah, there were loads that we'd never... Yeah, who were really like, so one of my favourites is Izume, who's the uh, Shinto goddess of the dawn. And I didn't really know anything about Japanese mythology before we started researching the book. And she is just a wonderful one because we do her on laughing at yourself, learning to laugh at yourself, because she, um, the, the main story about her is that the sun goddess was offended by her brother. The Japanese sun goddess was offended by her brother and hid herself away in a cave. And when the sun disappears, obviously everything goes to shit on earth. It's all darkness and monsters. And so all of the other gods and goddesses were desperate to get the sun goddess out of the cave. And the only one who managed it is Azume. And she managed to do this by doing a sort of strict tease cabaret dance that made all the other gods laugh. And it was the sound of laughing that made the sun goddess come out of the cave because she couldn't miss out on the joke and I just love that story I just think it's you know there's a lot about you know having a sense of humor about yourself and a lack of vanity 
but also just it's the dawn and the light and the sunshine and how laughter is all of those positive health giving things mm. to us I just love that story but I haven't yeah I didn't know about her before we started work oh it's just a shame women aren't funny <laughs> yeah we talk about that in her chapter about how there's a lot of yeah discussion about how women aren't funny and um and yeah, how actually studies show that it's more about people's expectation. And a lot of what the book's about is about stereotypes about women and what we can and can't be. And how the goddesses, some of them really have helped fix those damaging stereotypes. But there's always a twist in the way that you can look at them that maybe opens up more opportunities. Yeah. And particularly their kind of wild early forms we found that a lot of the stories we thought we knew even about the greek and roman ones were quite sanitized by the versions that have been done for children or the way that they kind of have been worked through kind of christianized kind of records and actually they're quite wild and dark and violent a lot of them and that was quite liberating as well from this idea of what a goddess is the advice within the book is really lovely it's very much about believing in yourself giving less fucks about what other people think and absolutely claiming your strengths and your flaws I think it's it's great but what comes first the bit of advice that you would like to give or the goddess and how do you fit them together Hmm. well it's definitely it's definitely a bit of both it's kind of it can be quite an organic process where you know, we'll just be chatting. We we'll say, right, we really want to have something about body positivity. We really want to have something about, you know, fear, fear or kindness. Yeah. Or, yeah. And then, then you'd have maybe four goddesses that could kind of fit that. And then as you start sort of researching it, one just starts to emerge as a really strong contender, I think. Yeah. How you found it? Yeah, right? we just read lots and lots of stories. Yeah. And then some of them really obviously jumped out mm. and, and were immediately, you know, the subject was immediately matched with the goddess. And some of them you just find sort of as you go through yeah. little moments that pop out you think oh okay that really works for that one and yeah 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 it's a, it's a fun process though did you end up sort of learning advice that you wanted to give or indeed wanted to give yourself from any of the stories yeah see this is what we found with our first book um what we Buddha could do as well we actually inspired ourselves <laughs> <laughs> Which some because we were learning for that book. I mean, we we like writing books to kind of learn ourselves, basically, and educate ourselves. And with Boudicca, we were talking about real life women um, from history, and a lot of their kind of examples did change. It did sort of change the way that we were at mm. work, yeah. the way we work. You know, kind of channeling Mae West at work is always a good idea. Yeah, 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 totally. um, and it's the same with the goddesses. There's there's a lot about so. You do Mazu on kindness, yeah. which, you know, felt like a really, in the kind of current climate we're in, felt like a really important subject yeah. to have in there. Yeah. Baba Yaga is one of my favourite ones as well. Um, she, she, I like her because she's, again, as Liz was saying, she really disrupts all those. I mean, she's a witch um, and a goddess from kind of Russian folklore, but she really disrupts all the sort of ideas of loads of different things, but particularly sort of domesticity. She has, like, she flies around in this sort of weaponized pestle and mortar and she lives in this gruesome sort of grand design situation in the woods with on like a house with chicken legs that move and walk around and I love that but we wrote about her and being unapologetic and actually that that bit really spoke to me because I say sorry far too much and I've made it a rule particularly actually over lockdown to not use that word in emails ever so I will not say now sorry I didn't attach the document I just say I didn't attach the document here it is now and that's like a really that's like a genuine bit of practical advice that I've given myself yeah. <laughs> and to not do and it's and it, it's really liberating that one about not saying sorry it really yeah. is, I really, it's a real it's a good one 
Babiaga is one of my favourites as well, but we'll touch on that in a minute. So (laughs) women in mythology, like women today everywhere, tend to be pigeonholed into being in charge of love, fertility, nature, owls. To be honest, there were way more owls than I was expecting. But mostly (laughs) even goddesses are seen as nurturing because, of course, most of these myths and legends were created by men. Did you find that frustrating at all? Yes. So we talk quite a lot about how most of the written records that we have the stories from clearly were written down by men or interpreted by men because men were the people who had access to education and also Mm. the platforms to communicate. But one of the things we really liked actually was so with one of the characters we have in the book is Bladiweth, the uh, Welsh uh, kind of supernatural heroine. She sort of illustrates that point really well, because in the story about her, she is created by a man. And she's also part of a story created by a man. And she's made out of flowers as a wife. And she's sort of made as a ready-made sort of sex bot for this Welsh hero. But what's amazing about her is that she is supposed to be this perfect wife and have no volition of her own. And she's just supposed to be the companion person. And actually, she kicks over the traces and runs off with someone else. Mm. And it doesn't, you know, end well for her. She gets turned into one of the owls in the book. (laughs) But it was just interesting that we, you know, for us, that was a really good one because we see her in such a different way to the way that the men who wrote that story probably Mm. saw her. Yeah. Or the men at the time where that story was being kind of transferred because she seems really empowering and kind of amazing to us. But obviously she was probably written originally or, or spoken about originally in the oral culture that she came from as a kind of cautionary tale about, you know, women being kind of nasty sluts mm. and how you can't really control them. They're so dangerous, uh, even ones made of flowers. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it's, it's an interesting thing about like some of the much more ancient um, mm. goddesses you know like so one of one of my one of the one of the ones i love is um inanna and actually we came across her uh, she's a sumerian really ancient goddess i first came across her actually from when we were writing Boudicca because she was written about by enedjuana who's like the first humanity's first named author Mm -hmm. and she was a priestess of inanna and she wrote all these hymns and poems dedicated to her actually what inanna manages to sort of hold is you know, there is, okay, yes, she's the goddess of um, sex and fertility and love, but she's also the goddess of war and politics and violence. And that, that I, I just love that idea, you know, the, so, the, so the stories as they've morphed over kind of the millennia have changed, but if you go right back to their origins, they're really wild, you know, they're yeah. really kind of um, fierce and not what you'd expect. And I suppose that thing, because a lot of them are based on really primal stuff about mother nature mm-hmm. who is gives who gives to you but also can destroy right yes. so that coming back to that idea of you know thunderstorms and lightning and how early humanity tried to make sense of this really brutal but also uh, plentiful world around them and mm-hmm. so those really ancient archetypes of female goddesses actually hold both things with them and that that felt kind of inspiring on the level as well yeah you get to have death as well as birth yeah. usually yeah. you're a proper powerful goddess exactly yeah, yeah. I love that. My notes say the flip side to that kind of gentler nature of a lot of them is that there's also a shitload that take care of death. And it it feels, and you absolutely touch on this throughout the book, a fear of powerful women that remains today. Exactly. Exactly. And yet, look how brilliant they all are. I keep thinking about the three countries that have managed to do well are all ruled by women, right? It's amazing. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Terrifying. (laughs) Terrifying women for the win. Absolutely. Exactly. 
<laughs> so I'm working on channeling Baba Yaga and the Morrigan, who both celebrate giving zero fucks, which I love. <laughs> and I'm not saying this is easy, but you must have known that I would do this. And I would like you to pick a favourite, please. I am going to start with Liz. So the Morrigan is actually my favourite as well. So she's the, this Irish battle goddess. And we do her on uh, being a bitch. And we get to do that because of the wordplay of the fact that she does actually at one point turn into a wolf bitch. But she is also a really difficult, tricky lady who causes trouble everywhere she goes. But she is incredibly liberating to read about because in her stories, she um, does a lot of tormenting the great kind of Irish hero, <laughs> Cahullan. And she does this in many different ways and in many different forms. And one of the great things about her is this, she's this shapeshifter and she's incredibly kind of gothy and appears as a raven a lot of the time eating entrails or as an old woman washing bloodied armour. She's just got a really dark, dark kind of melodramatic thing going on. <laughs> we talk about how women are referred to as bitches or criticised for things that perhaps men aren't criticised for in terms of kind of owning their own successes or, you know, standing up for things or complaining about things that they aren't generally encouraged to because we're encouraged to be nice and accommodating. And the Morrigan is not nice and accommodating at all. So she was a fantastic one to learn about and to, uh, yeah, to write about as well. I love that she's a shapeshifter because, of course, I mentioned it earlier, women tend to get put into certain boxes and she's like, nope, not staying in your box, moving, going to be a wolf now, now a raven. Yeah, totally. Beth? You've actually picked two of my favourites. I'm now going to have to pick another one. So Inanna and Baba Yaga are definitely two of my favourites. But well, there's another one, the Selkie wife, who I really mm. love as well. So she's a um, Scottish um, goddess. So Selkies were these, again, shape-shifting animal uh, creatures that could appear as seals and then as human beings. And they had this capacity to bewitch humans. You've made a funny point about seals having those lovely eyes. Yeah, they've got very seductive eyes. Sorry, that's a But there's a there's a brilliant story about um, the selkie wife, where there's this um, this very eligible bachelor who uh, shuns all the women in town because he believes that he believes that women are like Eve actually and cause nothing but trouble. But then one day he comes across these selkies sunbathing on a rock. And he creeps up behind them and he steals the most beautiful woman's coat and then it basically forces her to then stay with him on land. She can't go back into the water without her seal skin. So she lives with him. They have four children together. They have these like, you know, seemingly perfect marriage, except that every so often when she stares at the sea and sings her song, she sort of thought children stop playing and <laughs> animals stop feeding. She's so sad, is she? Anyway, she sets up this kind of ploy when all but one of her husband and all but one of her children are down on the beach collecting cockles. And she tricks her daughter, her youngest daughter, into telling her where the seal skin is. As soon as she finds out, she whips it on and vanishes off into the sea, never to see her family again. And I find that just really powerful as a kind of... Maybe it's because I've been in lockdown too long with my family. Run away! Run away! <laughs> but I did think in terms of... So we write about her and saying no, and so it's this sort of ultimate rejection of this. You know, she's in a coercive relationship. Yeah! And she has... She basically, you know, given that at the first opportunity she gets to escape her sort of gilded cage, she takes it. She and gets I, free. She yeah. gets free, and she says no to it. And I thought that was... And, you know, she says no to her children, she says no to this this perfect life and I thought that was 
I don't know, that spoke to me on a level. There's a lot of that, isn't there, in mythology? There's a lot of men coercing women into yeah, things. Exactly. So much rape in uh, Greek and Roman exactly. mythology. Yeah. But, you know, when I was a kid reading about it, I never really, I didn't really understand that word when I started reading those myths. And I, and I always found it really confusing. There are all these pictures of goddesses, you know, Renaissance pictures and beautiful portraits and stuff. And the, the goddesses and the nymphs are always running away mm. or naked. <laughs> And you kind of think, okay, that is how we have started. To, we, we think about women in that way. And this idea of a persistent suitor being a romantic thing, mm. like a stalker yeah, is a yeah. romantic. That's yeah, really yeah. romantic. Exactly. There's the story of Rhiannon in the book as well, where she is like essentially stalked by the person who becomes her husband. And mm. it's supposed to be really romantic. Yeah, and yeah. It's really dedicated. But you just don't read these things the same way now. <laughs> We still have that message in today's rom-coms, you know, like the grand gesture or like the guy in Bristol who put a piano outside his ex-girlfriend's flat and said he wouldn't stop playing until she got back with him. Jog on, mate. She's not interested. This isn't romance. This is harassment and stalking. That's what's so powerful about things. Like I'm watching that I May Destroy You, which is just amazing. It's really hard to watch, but that is what's really powerful about it, isn't it? It's just that it sort of exposes all of those sexual politics in a way that it's just really shocking yeah um, but brilliant brilliantly done so one of the joys of you goddess is you can just dip in and out and kind of pick up tips or just read about your favorites and go back to them and revisit baba yaga again and again and again uh so if you're feeling like you're giving too many fucks just go and get a little bit of a top up there what would you like readers to take away from the book as a whole mm. yeah so there are a couple of things we found because we wrote all the chapters kind of in isolation Mm. and then when we sort of put it all together we noticed lots of connections between the stories but there were things that came up kind of again and again and one of them was um the way that because most of a lot of these goddesses are associated with the earth and with fertility and stuff there's a lot where they talk about the environment or the way they they react as part of the environment that feels incredibly modern Mm. and kind of opposite now mm. so Pachamama who's one of the who's an Incan goddess who we talk about who is an earth who's your typical earth goddess and again who provides all the crops and all of the bounty but also causes earthquakes and floods if she's not properly respected she is now part of kind of move, environmental movements use her as an example and as a kind of symbol of how we have to show balance and respect in the way that we work with the environment and that was the kind of odd thing that we weren't necessarily expecting mm. to come out of a lot of the stories mm. Yeah, there's a really beautiful sort of connective tissue I found between all the stories from all around the world that does, not to be too cheesy about it, but it sort of reminds you about our kind of, I don't know, our, our similar qualities, whether you're whether you're a human being in Japan or Mexico or wherever it might be. There are these... Yeah, we've centuries all made, ago. Yeah, we've yeah. all made these sort of stories that resonate with each other and echo with each other. And that, that was something really lovely to kind of here I suppose but also I think I think for both of us this idea that you you mentioned earlier of resisting the stereotypes that are put upon mm. us and disrupting and resisting and 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 as you said not staying in your box that's definitely a really strong theme and I guess if there was anything a reader was going to come away from it would be that I think yeah that's probably the overarching thing mm. yeah it's fungicational I learned loads of stuff <laughs> Yeah, that's a good word. I might steal that. <laughs> you Goddess is out now and available from all good bookshops. Where can people find out more? Ah, you can follow us on Instagram. Yes, or our publisher's Faber, so the Faber website. So, yeah. that's one. so we're at Foley Coats on Instagram. Yes. Beth, Liz, thank you so much for sparing me some time. It's really nice thank to you. talk to you. Thank you so much. Hello, Hannah here. Coming up, you are about to hear an interview I did with the journalist Rhiannon Lucy Coslett. Her and I have some 
similar concerns about clothes. Firstly, about the ethics of production of clothes that we find on the high street. And secondly, about mass consumerism of clothes and how much of them end up in landfill. And so I thought, you know, we should just have this conversation that we've been having on Twitter and move it onto the podcast. That'd be interesting. Anyway, that was February. Then, I don't know if you noticed, but like the whole world kind of shut down for six months. So I think now it's probably a safe time to use this interview. People are back out shopping again and charity shops are open, which is an important point of this. And also we've had a lot of time to think about our wardrobes. You know, we've had time to go through and decide what it is we actually do and don't want taking up space. Anyway, I tell you this mostly because there's a couple of times where Rhiannon says at the moment that fashion is a certain way. And I I mean, I wouldn't know if it's changed or not in the intervening six months. But if it has, she's not mistaken. She does know what she's talking about. It's just time has passed since we did it. Enough of my waffling. Let's go to the interview. You, like I, am a firm believer that we should be a lot more ethical about where we buy our clothes. So what Mm. I was hoping for is if you could give us some tips that if we're looking to splash our cash, where some good ethical places to splash our cash for clothes would be. I would say that, like, my ethical shopping journey kind of began with my mum because she was always such a keen charity shopper when I was growing up and you know how it is a bit when you're at school you're kind of you know we didn't have much money and you're very concerned about kind of fitting in with other people and wanting to be cool and and so sometimes my mum would go into the charity shop and I refuse to go in with her I'd just stand outside which <laughs> I think actually in hindsight would just draw more attention to me. <laughs> yeah. like you know why is everyone standing outside help the aged if you look online a lot of charity shops particularly Oxfam have really good websites on the Oxfam website, there's a vintage clothing section where they're, you know, they're more kind of luxurious, I suppose you'd say, or designer items are placed. So you can go and have a look at those. That's a really, really good thing to do. I'm also, I was a very early adopter of eBay and you can find some really great stuff on there if you know what to look for. One of my favorite tips is if you're looking for something that's designer, for instance, when you're searching, you know, first you search for the name of the designer like Versace. But after you've done that search, if you look for a misspelling of the designer's name, often Ah. stuff will come up that nobody else finds because it's been misspelled. You get some really, really good bargains that way. Also, eBay has a thing now where it'll bid on your behalf, which is really good because you're not kind of sat there really tense and agonised at the end of the auction if you're trying to get something. like You can just put what maximum spend you're prepared to pay and you can do that. But eBay's a really, really good one. Just buying off other people generally, I think, you know. I don't really shop in high streets anymore. I think I've bought maybe one thing from Zara in the last six months. And that's because I found that if there is something that I really, really like in a high street shop, and often there is, I'll just hang on and wait until it turns up on eBay. And that's something that you can do quite easily by setting up categories of searches where eBay will will notify you when something's listed. Ah. So there was a particular kimono that I really wanted, for instance, that was from the um, Scandinavian brand Weekday. 
And I just set up a search for like weekday kimono. So whenever one was added, it would email me and notify me and I could check out to see if it was one that I wanted. Then that's like how you can often get stuff that's like been out of stock or that's sold out in high street shops because it's been so popular as well. Finally, an email from eBay that you actually want. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think also a lot of listeners will have heard of this one, but Depop, which is an app that you have on your phone where you can search for items and it's it's things that have been listed for sale by other other people other private citizens I suppose you'd call them and you can pay for it securely using PayPal and I found that often the prices are really really reasonable so like today I got a shirt that was 100% silk that looks a lot like one by the brand Equipment, which does a signature silk shirt that costs about £275. Right. And this is like a 100% silk shirt that looks almost exactly the same. And I got that for £18 at £2 postage, so £20 total. And it's been worn maybe a couple of times. So you can get some really, really great stuff on there that gives, you know, the same kind of dressed up look or luxury look that designer clothes do but for a fraction of the price now see I am not very fashionable and by that I mean I I don't enjoy clothes shopping if I see something quite often it's actually somebody else I know has got it on and I'll be like oh where did you get that from um yeah so I get to be a bit smug and say oh I would never shop in Primark you know because they have a terrible record on which I to be fair I don't even know if that that still stands at one point Primark I had serious concerns about how its clothes were made. Yeah. Is that a common problem with the high street? Is is it is it difficult to be fashionable and be ethical at the same time, I suppose, is the question that I'm asking. Personally, I really don't think it is at all. I don't think it's difficult. You know, as someone who grew up without very much money for, you know, most of my childhood, I suppose what I'm saying is, the high street is kind of a shortcut to looking fashionable. Right. I've always thought that I've always thought that style and kind of elegance is something that's not so trend led anyway. So, you know, the items that I'd be looking for if I was looking for a kind of classic wardrobe would be a Burberry trench coat. I got one of those off eBay, you know, a classic white silk shirt, a good pair of well cut navy blue or black trousers you know levi's jeans these are all things that you can get secondhand and you know you'll notice that shops like urban outfitters they're now selling vintage levi's jeans because they're so fashionable you don't need to shop high street in order to get that look and i think they realize that too now part of the reason that i hardly ever shop on the high street anymore is just because i noticed how quickly things do date so even if it is in fashion by the time you've had it for a couple of months it no longer is yeah I got to the point where I was just ending up you know I was just I wasn't throwing away clothes but I was donating a lot of clothes to charity and thinking why did I buy that what was going through my head you know that I looked at this item I was being a fashion victim basically I was thinking oh that's going to make me look really fashionable and great and often they're made out of horrible fabrics like polyester and the sort of thing that'd catch fire if you held a naked flame up Uh, to it and they fall apart at the seams you know the stuff that staff uniforms are made out of yeah exactly and that's like that's the most persuasive 
thing for me is not just the ethics of it, but also the fact that these clothes are made to be disposable. Yeah, very They're much so. They're not made to last. My grandma always says poor people can't afford to buy cheap things. And it's true. You just end up buying five pairs of shoes one after the other instead of one pair of really good shoes that are going to last you for ages. Yeah. And I think it's an age thing as well. Like now that I'm in my early 30s, I think I care more about stuff that's going to last than I did. You know, my big Primark bulk shopping was when I was a university student. Although I I did cotton on quite quickly, like what bad quality a lot of it was. I don't think you need... You need to shop on the high street in order to be fashionable at all. Do, do you know the greatest find, like, of piece of clothing that I ever owned and the greatest find I ever made was actually in my own house. We used to have an electricity card where you had to top it up at the meter. Uh-huh. And it yeah, was yeah. under our stairs. And under our stairs was where everybody's coat was. So you basically really had to burrow in, burrow in <laughs> through all these coats to get to the electricity meter. And at one point, I wondered what all those coats were. And amongst them was a full-length leather coat that my dad had owned in the 1960s. That I was like, oh, my God, what is this? Can I have it? And he was like, yeah, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I can remember my mum being horrified when I referred to a pair of boots that she'd bought in the 90s as vintage and asking yeah. if I could borrow them. But, like, parents are a really good shout. You know, um, you know, godparents as well, aunties and uncles. Yeah. And, like, swapping with friends. Often I'll pick stuff up in charity shops that just isn't going to fit me. Like, I saw, I was in a British Heart Foundation on Holloway Road. I found a pair of Stella McCartney brogues for £9. And they were a size four. So, But I still bought them because I knew that one of, I could give them to one of my friends. Just saying... I take a size four if you haven't found a good home for them. Sorry, it's too late. They got Uh snapped up. Some other small-footed woman got in there first. Exactly, exactly. But that's, yeah, that's a really good way of doing it as well as, like, swapping things or, you know, even, like, chucking your mate a bit of cash for something that doesn't fit them anymore. It feels as good as a new dress, you know, just because it's belonged to somebody else before doesn't mean that it doesn't have that, like, exciting new feeling where you, you know, you put it on and you feel great. I have a question. This is just largely a piece of advice for for, for me personally. I have incredibly mm-hmm. short legs. So okay. I do find shopping on the high street quite hard from that point of view, but also like charity shop shopping, you know, because you'll find a pair of jeans and you think, oh my God, they're amazing. And then you have to cut a foot off the bottom of them. Have you got any suggestions for where people might be able to pick up bargains if they aren't a conventional size and shape, if they're maybe size 20 or above, or they're six foot or like me, five foot? There's loads of stuff on eBay. Like, you know, when when you were just talking about your problem right now, I was thinking, well, get some vintage Levi's, especially if you're getting like 501. Although I find, I can't remember what they're called. They're called like 571s, I think, or 570s. They're a better shape if you're, you know, if you've got a bum or hips than a 501, because 501s were only ever made for men. So you have yeah. to you have to properly measure yourself with a tape measure, and it is a bit of trial and er- error to make sure that you kind of get the right size. But once you've found a style of vintage Levi's that fits you and you get used to measuring yourself, you can take them into the Levi's shop. 
in any town and they will they will tailor them to you oh, really? for a small fee yeah so like it's really fashionable at the moment to have jeans that are kind of sort of I don't know if you've noticed slightly cropped and either turned up or like with a what they call a, a raw hem and I took a load of vintage jeans into the Levi's shop in Covent Garden not that long ago and they they basically like tailored them to my height and to the length that I wanted and the style that I wanted as long as they're Levi's they don't have any problem doing that and you can also if you've got a local dry cleaner often they'll take stuff in for you you can buy things that are like several sizes too big and they'll take them in they'll hem it at the right length all kinds of stuff they can change the buttons for you and that you know is usually quite affordable as well so there is loads of stuff that you can do so can I ask, if people do want to buy themselves some new clothes, mm-hmm. for example, wh- where would you suggest is a good place to get some ethically made clothes? Who is a good example of ethics on the high street? Oh, that's a really hard question. I wouldn't say I was particularly up to date on the latest sustainability policies of the high street because you know like I said I've made the personal decision to just not shop high street at all the last time I looked at I find that Scandinavian brands in general are much much more switched on to that kind of thing so I have I have looked at the sustainability policies of and other stories and monkey and places like that which are both owned by the H&M group. But they're still, like, they're still not brilliant, to be honest. They're better than, than, than most, I'd say. But I'll still look on eBay first to see if the item that I want is on there, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, until consumers start voting with their feet, high street shops aren't going to change their policies. I think generally... I think it's better to buy more expensive items and fewer of them than to engage in kind of fast fashion. I'd rather buy a dress from and other stories that costs £80 and feel slightly guilty about that decision than buying four pairs of shorts for £20 each that are just going to end up in landfill. So I think it's, you know, if you are going to shop high street, I'd say do it in a more considered way those really special purchases as opposed to just kind of like filling you know when you go into Primark and people are just filling their shopping baskets with stuff that you just know is going to end up in a rubbish dump in a year's time that's what I think is really really sad about it I'm not like gonna you know think badly of someone who occasionally pops to Zara and buys a blouse I think it's just the sheer like overconsumption that's that's well putting the world in so much trouble you know yeah thank you so much for your time Rhiannon no worries it's been really nice talking to you if you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women yeah us we know you can do so by visiting our Patreon page www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way thanks very much Standard issue for all women.